If you haven't already found your place in the book of Malachi, I want you to do so now. Find your place in the book of Malachi. And we're going to be talking about this entire book. It's four chapters long. And we're going to look at not every verse, but every chapter of this book uh, as I bring you a very important message today about our money, about stewardship, about our giving. Malachi is one of the minor prophets. He is the last of the writing prophets. After Malachi, there will come 400 years of silence until the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Until the birth of John the Baptist, there's 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist, 400 years of what is called the silent years. In other words, heaven was closed as far as God's speaking. Uh, God wasn't revealing himself or giving messages uh, from himself to any of the prophets that were being communicated to his people. For 400 years, there was silence from heaven. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Uh, 400 years that they didn't hear from God. And then ask yourself the question, why? Why would there be 400 years when they didn't hear from God? And the answer to that is found in the book of Malachi. Malachi tells you what are the conditions, what is the circumstances, what's the situation going on 400 years before John the Baptist is born into this world and why for the next 400 years there's going to be silence from heaven, God not speaking to his prophets and through his prophets. Now to understand Malachi, I've got to give you a little bit of a history lesson, give you a little bit of a setting the children of Israel had been captured, 586 B.C., and taken into Babylonian captivity. That means that they were picked up, at least most of them, not all of them. Some of the poorest were left to tend the ground and, and to live there in the land. But most of the Jewish people were picked up and they were transported to Babylon. And they lived the next 70 years in Babylon, in that territory of Babylon. Babylon was ultimately conquered by the Medo-Persians, and in the first year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, he made a decree that the Jewish people who had been living in that land could go back to Israel. They could go back to their homeland. Understand, he still uh, ruled over them. They were still responsible to him, but he would let them go back. And so they went back. After 70 years of being out of the land, they go back they have to rebuild the temple, they have to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and they have to reestablish the worship of God at the temple. And they did all of that. If you're reading in your Bible and you're looking for that, it's in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, primarily. Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they're back rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the walls, they're reestablishing the worship. And when they got all these things done, they, they were expecting something that didn't occur. When Solomon built the first temple, the one that the Babylonians destroyed, God's glory descended and filled that temple. When they rebuilt what's called Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple uh, after the captivity, they were expecting God's glory to come down again and fill that temple, but it didn't. His glory didn't fill that temple. They were expecting as well that there was going to be a, an, an almost utopian kind of an age 
that they were going to throw off their oppressors, they were going to throw off the rule of the Persians, they were going to throw off all of those who would uh, seek to, to, to govern them, and that they were going to live in a land where there was prosperity and there was blessing and everything that they had dreamed about, everything they had heard about that was going to come one day, they were expecting it uh, you know, after they had rebuilt the temple and after they had re- rebuilt the walls of the city, but it didn't happen. As the glory of God didn't come down to fill the temple, neither was there that utopian age that came down and they began living and enjoying. And little by little, over the next hundred years, from the time that they were allowed to go back until the day of Malachi, it's about a hundred years, little by little over that hundred years time, their hearts began to drift from God, even further from God. They were going through the motions of their religious activity, but there was very little heart in it. And the priests, the ones who were the leaders uh, amongst the religious uh, establishment, amongst the religious ceremonies and things, even their hearts had grown cold toward God. And so God, through three prophets, one of them is Obadiah, the other is Zechariah, and through the prophet Malachi, God comes to the people to encourage them, to correct them, to call them to repentance, to call them back to himself. And that's what God is intending to do through Malachi. When you read the book of Malachi, it's filled with dialogues. There's six of these dialogues that I'm going to point out to you. In other words, God speaks, the people react, and God responds. God speaks, the people react, and God responds. But when the people react to what God says, you're going to hear them asking him questions. And when they ask him questions, I want you to know they are questions with attitude. They're not, they're not inquisitive kind of, you know, Lord, we don't know. Would you please explain this to us? We want to know kind of questions. They are questions of rebellion. They are questions of, I don't believe what you're saying. They are questions that are putting their hand up, as if you will, in God's face and saying, talk to my hand. You can't talk to me. They're questions that are asked with that kind of an attitude. You find this first dialogue mentioned in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. He says, God speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, here comes... uh, Here comes the reaction of the people. Yet you say, and you see this phrase over and over, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, do you see the attitude? God says, I've loved you. I've loved you. And they say, prove it. We don't believe you. In what way have you loved us? And so God, he he gives them one of the ways that he's loved them. He goes on, was not Esau Jacob's brother? says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. In other words, he says, I chose the people of Jacob to be my people, not the people of Esau, the Edomites. I chose the people of Jacob, Israel, to be my people through whom I'm going to deliver the Messiah one day. I didn't choose, I didn't choose Esau, and there's reasons for that, but he says here that He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Please understand, that has nothing to do with their individual eternal destinies. That has to do with the outcome of their their nation, of the people that come from Esau and the people that come from Jacob, the nations that develop from these people. And so he says, if if you want to know if I love you or not, here's one of the proofs. I chose you. Here's another dialogue that's found down in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, a son honors his father, 
and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. And so the people react. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, there's their reaction, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Do you hear the attitude in it? Lord, you say we've despised you. A father deserves honor. A master deserves honor uh, in reverence. But you're saying we're not giving that to you. What do you mean by that? We, We don't believe that. Verse 7, he explains, God explains, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? And so God says, here's how I know that you're not showing me reverence and you're not showing me honor. When you come to the the temple to, to worship me and to bring your offerings, you bring what is defiled. You don't bring what is honorable, you bring what is defiled. And he goes on to explain what he means. Verse 7, by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer, now listen, here's what they brought. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? Listen to those words. And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? And then he says, offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? In essence, he says, the way you've shown me dishonor, the way you've shown a lack of reverence, is that you bring the the, the leftovers when it comes to the matter of my service, when it comes to the matter of my worship. You don't bring me your best. And in so doing, you've shown no reverence for me, and you've shown no respect for me, and you've shown dishonor for me. Can I just stop here for a moment? Can I tell you that we should be bringing God our best? We don't bring God leftovers. We bring God our best. Now, what is my best will be different than what is your best, and what your best will be different than what is my best. But I don't, I don't bring to God, and you don't bring to God less than our best. Because to do so shows that we don't reverence Him. To do so shows that we don't honor Him. And that's what they were doing. They were bringing to the sacrificial system less than their best. They were bringing the blind and the, and the lame animals, those that had been harmed in some way. That he, they were bringing them. You know, after all, what could we do with these anyway? Let's keep the good ones for ourselves. Let's offer to God those that aren't so good. And God said that was evil. If you look over to the end of chapter 1, you see why it's important that we give God the best. At the end of verse 14, he says, For I, God speaking, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Why do we bring God the best? Because he deserves it. Because of who he is. He says, offer what you're offering to your own governor, your civil governor. Offer him these these sacrifices that are less than your best. See if your governor is pleased with that. Obviously, the answer is a rhetorical question. The answer is he wouldn't be pleased. Then why should God be pleased when you bring less than your best to him? When you get to chapter 2, he excoriates the priests. The priests were the ones who were allowing this to occur. The priests were the ones who were supposed to be teaching the people and leading the people in the things that they were supposed to be doing to show reverence and honor to God. But instead of doing so, the priests themselves had become corrupt. In a hundred years' time, the priests themselves had become corrupt. Notice what he says, chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But 
You have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. He says, you priests, you're the leaders, and you're allowing this to go on. You're participating in what's going on. You're even uh, at times encouraging what's going on. You, You know, leadership brings with it greater responsibility. You understand that, don't you? Leadership brings with it greater responsibility. And here were these who were chosen by God to be the priests, but they weren't assuming the responsibility that was theirs. And so God excoriates them from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 12. He excoriates them for their waywardness. But then we come to this third dialogue in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. This is the third dialogue where God speaks, the people react, and and then God answers. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, hear the attitude? Yet you say, for what reason? Why doesn't God accept our offering? And why doesn't God accept it with goodwill, what comes from our hands? And then he answers, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. Stop there with me for a moment. Who is the invisible person at every wedding? Who is the invisible person at every wedding? It's God. The Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? God says, didn't he make them one when he brought the man and the woman together? Didn't he make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why does God make one man and one woman for one lifetime? Because, do you read it? He seeks godly offspring. The best soil in which to raise children that grow up to be godly children is in the family where there is a loving father and a loving mother and a husband and wife who are committed to one another for life. He goes on in verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, now, hold on a moment. Just hold on. He doesn't say he hates the divorced. He hates divorce. And I would assume those of you that have been through the horrors of a divorce, even though it was necessary for you to go through it, you would say you hate divorce. You don't wish anyone to have to go through what you have been through when you had to go through that divorce. And you understand that it would be far better if it had been you and your spouse for the rest of your life. It would have been far better for the two of you. It would have been far better for your children. That is, if the circumstances had been right, if both of you could have honored God together, that would have been the better of the options. But you were put in a situation where you had to do something drastic, and you wish you didn't have to go through it. It, It's not something you love doing, not something you wish on anybody. As a matter of fact, you would probably say, I hate divorce. I see the effects of it. I see the impact of it. I see what, what comes from it. That doesn't mean if you're a single parent, you can't raise godly children. You certainly can. God can help you to raise godly children. But here's what these people were doing. These men were divorcing their Jewish wives, and they were marrying pagan women who were idolaters, and then following in the idolatry of their pagan wives. Now think about that. They were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to marry a pagan wife 
who was an idolater. And God says, I hate divorce. As a matter of fact, I think personally in verse 13, where he says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, I think it's very possible that the weeping and the crying were those wives who had been divorced by their husbands and had been replaced by a pagan woman who was an idolater. I think it's very possible that the weeping and the crying was from the heartbreak of what those women had been through. And God says, because of the way you have conducted yourself toward your spouse, I don't have any regard for your offerings. I don't receive anything as goodwill from your hands because of the way you've lived your lives. There's another of these dialogues in verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You know, sometimes we talk too much, don't we? You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, hear the attitude? In, in, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. You do evil, it's okay, no big deal. God's not going to do anything, it's all right, go ahead. And he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? I mean, in essence, they're saying, God, you're to blame for our economic troubles, and you're to blame for our social troubles. And besides that, uh, they're giving credence to those who are living in ways they shouldn't be living and they're giving agreement with their lips saying it's okay it's okay God's all right with this God's all right with this God says you weary me with your words if you go over to chapter three you find uh, the fifth dialogue that takes place in verse seven we're going to skip it we're going to come back to it the sixth and final dialogue takes place down in verse 13 of chapter three He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. In other words, to obey God and serve God, there's no no reward in it. Verse 15, so now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. I mean, there's no reward in doing what's right, and the wicked get away with whatever they're doing, basically is what he's saying. And that's the things that they were saying. And they're dialoguing with God. And they're trying to excuse their own behavior and their own conduct. I'm glad to be able to tell you that there was a group amongst the larger group that was a remnant of people who were faithful to God. You meet them in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, then, circle that word, that's a timing word. Then, I mean, having heard all that God had to say, Having heard what God is going to do, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And there's a remnant group out of the larger group of people that recognize that they're not living right. The people around them are not living right, and they do three things. If you're living in a faithless age like we're living, they did three things in order to remain faithful. First of all, they vowed to be faithful no matter what anyone else did. They even wrote it down in a book. The second thing is they surrounded themselves with people who would encourage them with faithfulness. They spoke to one another. And then finally, they remembered that there was a day of reckoning that was coming when there would be a judgment. 
chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. They remembered that there was a day of judgment that was to come. And in doing at least those three things, they encouraged one another to be faithful even in the midst of a society around them that was being unfaithful, bringing to God less than their best, saying that God didn't care about how people lived and God didn't care about what was right or what was wrong being upset because they felt that God wasn't rewarded, rewarding them for doing right, and he was uh, not doing anything about those who were doing wrong. He was just sort of overlooking it. And you get the attitude that's going on. But I want to bring you back to chapter 3 one more time, just verse 7, because here's where we want to spend these next few moments. Today's sermon is sort of like a funnel. It's sort of broad at the top and very narrow at the bottom. We've been in the broad part of the funnel been showing you these different dialogues, but it comes down to one particular dialogue I want you to see, because it has to do with your money and my money. If you were going to have a revival, how, how do you think in this, in, this set, in this setting, in this circumstance, if you were going to have a revival, what do you think God would call the people to do? Well, notice verse 7, yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Here's the, here's the revival words. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? Now, how would you answer that? How would you answer that? Listen to how God answers it. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And then God gives them the answer. If you want me to return to you, you've got to return to me. And he says, it begins with your tithes and offerings. Wow. Verse 9, you, have, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's revival, isn't it? Verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. But isn't it interesting that when God calls his people back to himself, he points out a number of areas where, where, they're, where they're profligate, where they're living in rebellion, where they're doing the opposite of what God expects them to do. But when he says, if you want me to return, you've got to return to me in respect of your tithes in your offerings. Interesting. You know what God knows that all of us need to know? Our checkbooks reveal whether we're having revival or not. Our checkbooks reveal whether we're excited about the things of God or not. And God understood that when they began to obey him and give their tithes and their offerings, God would return to them. And there would be such a revival, the windows of heaven would open on them. They would be blessed in such ways. God would rebuke the devourer. He would allow the land to produce abundantly so, and they would have more than they could ever use. But he wasn't going to return to them if they didn't return to, them, to him in their tithes 
in their offerings. Now, are you with me? That's the story of Malachi. That's a hundred years after they returned to the land. That's 400 years before, before uh, John the Baptist is born into the world. That's 400 years before John the Baptist comes. Now, you know, whenever I talk about tithes and offerings, which I don't do very frequently, whenever I talk about tithes and offerings, and I refer to a passage like this, there's always somebody who comes to me and they say, but pastor, we're not under the law, the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses, and therefore we don't have to tithe our income back to God. Well, let me be clear with you. You're not under the law of Moses. You ought to rejoice. You're not under the law of Moses. You ought to say, thank God. Uh, But let me ask you a question. If under the law they had to give back a tithe of their income to God and to His work, why would those of us who live in the day of grace in the day of his mercy, want to give back to God less than a tithe of our income to God. I mean, those of us who have experienced this enriching grace of the Almighty God, let me ask you a question. How did you receive that grace? How did you get that grace? What did you do for that grace? You didn't do anything. God bestowed that grace on you. He gave it to you, what's the word? Freely. Why then, those of us who have been given this grace so freely, why would we want to be so stingy with the resources that God has given to us? If he has enriched us by his grace, why would we want to give back only or less than what they had to give under the requirements of the law? Why wouldn't we who've been the recipients of grace want to do more because we have been blessed in more ways because of the grace of the Almighty God? Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, the Lord Jesus Christ was rich, yet for your sakes, for your sakes, he became poor. Why? That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you realize you're rich? You say, well, my bank account doesn't show it. Whether your bank account shows it or not, you're rich. You're rich. You don't live under the law of Moses. You live under the grace of Jesus Christ. And why would we under grace want to do less than those who lived under the law? And when it really comes to a matter of the revival of the heart, it really begins with our pocketbook. Because what we believe in and what we love, we give to. And we support. And we do it joyfully. Matter of fact, I would tell you the New Testament has principles that are related to the giving of grace. It says we're to give regularly. First Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Lay by yourself, lay by yourself in store every week. On the first day of the week, lay by yourself in store, he says. It's, it's, it's to be done regularly. It's not, it's not a matter of hit and miss or happenstance or, or maybe it's some crisis moment. It's a matter of regularly giving. He says we ought to give generously in the New Testament under grace. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. You know what it says? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the measure that you meet, it'll be meted back to you. As you're generously giving, God will give it back to you generously. If you give stingy, then God will give it back to you in that fashion. You reap what you 
So, that's the principle. We, we should be giving regularly. We should be giving generously. We should be giving joyfully. The Apostle Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. He loves somebody that looks forward to the offering plate coming by. He, he loves the person who looks for the offering envelopes in their mailbox and loves to see them there. We give joyfully. So let me just stop here for a moment. We're not under law. We're not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses and the tithe required by the law of Moses isn't imposed upon us. But why would those of us who have been recipients of the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ want to do, do less for the cause of, of the Almighty God than those under the law were doing? With all that we have received and with all the benefits that have been bestowed upon us and all the, His riches that have been given to us, why would we want to give less than they give? As a matter of fact, I'll tell you that our giving, the, the tenth really for, for us is, is the floor, it's not the ceiling. It's the beginning, it's not the ending. We're not looking for a percentage figure we can say, oh, I got by with giving God just this much. We're looking for ways to steward our resources to give to God as much as we can give to God. I mean, after all, He gave us everything, right? So I'm not trying to put you back under the law. I'm just asking you the question, as recipients of the grace of God, why would you want to do less than those who were under the law when you realize that grace has enriched you in such an incredible way? As a matter of fact, the New Testament says we give regularly and we give generously and we give joyfully. And this is what I'm about to say to you. If when the offering plates are passed, you can't give joyfully, keep it in your pocket. Keep it in your pocket. God has other ways of providing. You, that's between you and God. Just keep it in your pocket. If you're, the preacher has to twist your arm and he has to coerce you into being a part, a participant in what we're doing in the cause of Christ, it, you have to be forced into doing it. Keep it in your pocket. Amen. It ought to be joyful. It ought to be thankful. The New Testament says when we give, it ought to be regularly. It ought to be generously. It ought to be joyfully. It ought to be thankfully. Oh, God, thank you for all that you've given to me. How can I give you less than those who were required under the law to give you? How can I give you less than that? And Lord, how can I give more to you? I want to express my thanks to you for all that you have done for me. I want you to see the thankfulness of my heart. I suggest to you that you can look at a person's checkbook and you can tell whether they're in revival or not. You could tell Malachi's, in Malachi's day whether the people were in revival or not by how they were withholding from God the tithe. And you can tell today whether people are in revival or not by whether they're giving regularly and thankfully and joyfully and generously. You can tell. But then there's always somebody else who says, well, not only are we not under law, preacher, we're, that was giving to the temple. And now I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm, I'm 61 years old, soon to be 62 years old. And every time I think I've heard everything, there's always somebody else that comes along and says something that I have never heard quite the way they say it. And, and it sort of rattles my brain. My brain's a little loose in there anyway, and it sort of rattles my brain. I, I've stopped. I'm not good on the spot at giving an answer to somebody on the spot when they ask me a question. I have to think about it for a little while, and I'll come back to you. I'll give you an answer. 
I've got to think about how to answer you. But I'm now the temple. Well, you know, I got to thinking about that. And I wrote down seven reasons why I give to the local church. I don't give a tenth. I give, we give more than a tenth to the, to the local church. There's a lot of, I, get, I get requests every week from people who want money. Do you get that? It comes to me by way of email. It comes by snail mail. It comes by way of people at, at various places asking for this, that, and the other. Will you help us with this, that, or the other? There isn't a week that goes by that I don't get a, a, dozens of requests from people who want, who want me to give money. But why then do you give your money primarily? Mary and I give outside of the local church, beyond uh, our local church sometimes. But why do you give regularly and generously and joyfully and thankfully to the local church if it's not the temple? Why do you give to the local church? Well, I'm going to tell you. By the way, these seven reasons will be on the app. You'll be able to get them when the sermon's posted. If you can't write them down, you can get them off the app. Number one, I give to the local church because it's where God is at work in our world. You say, well, God's at work at a lot of places in our world. Yeah, but I, know, I want you to know that what Jesus said he was going to build was the church. He said he's going to build the, what was it? The church. Do you understand that the church is not God's plan B or God's plan C or God's plan D? The church is God's plan A. And there are churches that have walked away from the truth and they have left preaching the Bible. They no longer claim it to be the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. They're people who've turned their hearts away from the Lord to embrace the culture around them rather than to be faithful. There are churches like that. And where there are those kinds of churches, you should take your money out of those churches. You should take yourself out of those churches. But I would tell you that God's plan A is still the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are lots of parachurch organizations. They're always asking for, for, for you know, resources and support. And sometimes we're able to help them. But hear the word, para churches. What Jesus said he was going to build was his church. And that's what God's working in. God is working in and through his church. If I told you some of the things that God was doing in this place in people's lives, it would blow your mind. You mean God does that? You know, you can't tell everybody else's story. You can't tell everything that God is doing. Some of the things that God is doing are, listen, the word is miraculous. I give to the local church because it's where God is at work in our world. This is where God is at work. If I have resources beyond what I give to this local church, I want to be able to help in other areas and in other ways. But I assume that there are people outside the church who aren't committed to the work of the church, who can help with those particular, where, those particular areas. But God called me to help the church, be a part of the church. Number two, I give to the local church because fulfilling the mission of God depends on it. I give to the local church because it's where God is at work in our world. I give to the local church because fulfilling the mission of God depends on it. What is the mission of God? Making disciples of Christ. And the mission of the gospel isn't just local, it's global. And giving to the local church Enables the church to help fulfill the mission that God has given. I uh, got on an elevator. This is several years ago. I got on an elevator at one of our local hospitals. I have to wear that little yellow badge. It says I'm part of the clergy. That makes me feel really special. 
wear that little badge that says I'm part of the clergy. clergy. And so I got on one of the elevators, sort of in the back hallway of the elevator of the hospital to go up to, to the room. And when I got on, the doctor followed me in. He got on with me. I don't know the doctor. The doctor doesn't know me as far as I know. But he said something like this. He, he said, looking at my badge, he, he says, do you guys always have to ask for money? Now, to be honest with you, listen to me, listen to me. To be honest with you, I think he was joking with me. You know how sometimes people's humor doesn't come across the same way or you don't receive it the same way they're giving it? I actually think he was sort of picking at me, like in, in fun, picking at me. But, but I couldn't help but think to myself, I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> but I couldn't help but think to myself, where would, you, where would you be today if it weren't for your patients paying you? Where would your office be? Uh, where would your examining rooms be? Where would your instruments that you have to have in order to treat the sick be? Where would the surgery room be? Where would your MRI be or your, uh, your CAT scan be or your PET scan or whatever all those other scanner things are? Where, where would all those things be if people didn't pay you? I don't, I don't know if you understand this or not, but the work of God requires money to accomplish. Those missionaries that you saw earlier, they don't get there just on love. They have to be able to be supported. They have to have resources to be able to stay there and do the work that God's called them to. I don't know if you have noticed this lately, at least in the tri-state area. I haven't seen any churches with money tree groves around back or out to the side where they just walk outside and they just sort of pick off the money off the trees that are growing outside. I have never walked, out, walked outside of a church and seen Washingtons and Benjamins and Lincolns falling from the sky. You got my point? How does God support his work? He does it through the pockets of his own people. I give to the local church because it's where God is at work in our world. I give to the local church because fulfilling the mission of God depends on it. And I am committed, wholehearted, fully, until the day I die and I meet him face to face. I'm committed to the mission of God. Number three, I give to the local church because it's where Christians gather as family. There's always somebody that says, well, you know, we don't need a building. We don't need bricks and mortar. We don't need sheetrock and paint. We don't need carpet and fabric. We don't need platforms and wood. We don't need any of those things. We don't need parking lots. You're right. You're 100% right. Guess what? Where are you going to go when you leave here today? You're going home. You know what? You don't need a house. You don't need a roof. You don't need walls. You don't need furniture. You don't need appliances. You don't need a water bill, a gas bill. Uh, you, you don't need any of those things. I mean, you're still a family, right? Right? You're still a family. But guess what? You've got a house. Guess what? You've got an apartment. You may be renting it. You've got an apartment. We can meet anywhere and be the church. We can put up a lean-to somewhere and meet underneath it, and the church will be gathering as the family of God. But guess what? You know, the family needs a place to come together. I mean, where you can sit down around the table, which is what I'm doing today, where the meal gets served. You realize that's what a preacher's doing? He's bringing the baked goods out. 
not the kind that you can smell necessarily, but the, or the kind that make you fat, but he's bringing the baked goods out. And you're sitting around and you're encouraging one another and you're helping one another and you're loving one another and you're being hospitable to one another and all the other one another phrases. It's a place for us to gather. Guess what? You probably got a garage or at least a carport. Why? Because you want to get your car out from under the weather or out of the weather, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to have any of those things. You don't have to have those things to be a family. But you have those things. You know why? Because they're necessary in the sense of having a place to call your home. Why do we have buildings? You know, our church, we don't have a million-dollar chandelier hanging anywhere. I'm driving a four-year-old car. It's got almost 100,000 miles on it. We're not, we're not wasting money and spending money on things that are useless and unnecessary. But you know what? When you've got a big family, you need a bigger house, right? You've got six kids in a two-bedroom two house. You need a bigger house, right? That or you're pretty miserable. Need a place. Why do I give to the local church? This is where we gather. This is where the family. Do you understand that you are my family? You are my family. I've lived for 36 years, 550 miles from my, my immediate family. For the most part, when I think of family, I, I love my family in Georgia. Those that are still living, I love them. When I think of family and I need somebody to help me, I call on you and you call on me. We're family. We've got to have a place to meet. There's a lot of us. Yeah, I don't like water bills and gas bills and all the things. We don't have very many of those, but I don't, I don't like any of those things either. I wish I didn't have to pay any of those things at my house. But I've got to have a roof over my head, and I've got to have walls where I feel safe inside. I've got to have a place and some furniture where we can sit down, and we can have instruction, and we can have correction, and we can have love, and we can have interaction, and we can just be family. Do you realize what you're doing today? This is a family gathering. Number four, I give to the local church to support those who are called of God to teach, lead, and equip us. I give to the local church to support those who are called of God to teach, lead, and equip us. I don't know if you know this or not, but I pay part of my salary. Think about that. I pay part of the salaries of those that are on staff. Why? Because there are people that God has called to teach, to lead, and to equip they are those who have the special call of God. Every one of us is called to God, but there are some of us who are called by God in order to lead the church and to teach the church and to equip the church for the work that God's given us to do in this world. And I have no problem paying the preacher. <laughs> it's a little bit self-serving. <laughs> I have no problem paying the preacher. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, the man who works hard at the ministry of the Word, now listen, is, is deserving of, hear the words, double honor, Amen. double remuneration, Amen. double honor. You say, well, surely you make double the salary. You're, you're, getting, you're pulling down about 500000 a year. <laughs> Have you been to my house? By the way... <laughs> I'm not making $250,000 either. <laughs> but I have no problem helping those that God has intended to, to, to lead and to teach and to equip. I intend to, 
participate in their lives, to be a part of, of, their, of their support, to enable them to be able to do what God's given them to do. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 said that when he was in Corinth, he had every right to receive support from them, but he didn't take it. And there was a reason, a specific reason why he didn't take that support. But when you read Philippians chapter 4, Paul received support from other churches that enabled him to carry out the ministry that God had given to him. That's why I give to the local church. Number five, I give to the local church because it shows that my heart is all in the work. I give to the local church because it says and shows that my heart is all in the work. I have a, little, I have a pet peeve. Can I tell you what it is? I have more than one. <laughs> Can I tell you one of my pet peeves? When I, when I serve on boards, and I have on a number of occasions serve on boards, and I found out that somebody on the board isn't a financial participant in the board and with the project and they want the ability to control how that money is going to be spent that's been being given to that organization I, I, get, a, I get a little ruffled they don't have any skin in the game I'm, I'm not real crazy about people that don't have any skin in the game getting to decide how the game's going to be played you know what I'm saying? When I give to the local church, I'm telling you I'm all in. I'm all in. Every part of me is in. I'm not holding anything back. I got skin in the game. Listen to what Jesus said. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I can look at your checkbook. I'm not asking to and I don't want to. I can, tell, I can look at your checkbook and I can tell you where your heart is. Set aside the necessary things of life, your house, your payments, and so forth, a car, the gas, the food that you got to eat, things that you have to do. Set aside the money that's left over. It may, it may be about this much. The money that's left over. Tell me how you use it, and I'll tell you where your heart is. Are you putting it in youth events and youth sports? Are you putting it in country club memberships? Are you putting it in multiple properties? Hmm. Where your treasure is, there you've got skin in the game. There your heart will be also. I want you to know my heart's in the game. I give more than a tenth of my income back to God. None of your business how much more but I give it back to God. And I got skin in the game. When it comes time to vote on something, I'm going to vote. Matter of fact, I'm probably leading the whole process. I'm going to vote. I got skin in the game. Number six, I give to the local church because I can multiply my impact by joining with others. I give to the local church because I can multiply my impact by joining with others. I can do certain things on my own, but when we combine our efforts together, I can do more than I could do by myself. Now think about it for a moment. In the last nine months or so, 
We, di- we, we dug a well as a church. We, we raised the funds. We dug a well in India where they had no clean water. I say we. We sponsored a well to be dug in India where they had no clean water. That clean water is now placed close to a local church that is there so that when the people come to get water, clean water, there are people from the church that can minister to them and bring the gospel to them. Now, I've got news for you. I could never have done that on my own. But you know what? I multiplied by giving what I gave with a lot of other people who gave, and we dug a well. Think about it. When the children of the world came through, you remember us buying a whole bunch of cows? Cows? Yeah, because there's places in the world where they don't have cows and they don't have milk from the cows. If you don't have cows, you don't have milk from the cows. Where they don't have cows and they don't have milk from the cows. I could have maybe bought one cow, but we all worked together and we bought a whole bunch of cows. Amen? Amen. Think about our missionaries. I give to missions every week. I give to missions every week. But you know what? What I give to missions can only do so much. But when I combine it with all of the giving of everyone else who gives to missions, I'm able to multiply my efforts through 90-plus partnerships with missionaries. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you realize that when you give your tithes and your offerings to this local assembly, do you realize that what you're doing is you're combining your efforts with everybody else to see what God can do in people's lives? Maybe you could help change one life or two lives, but we combine our efforts together and we see dozens and dozens of lives that are changed. Number seven, and finally, I give to the local church because it's changed my life. And I want to pay it forward for others. I want to pay it forward for others. I was saved at a local church. I was baptized at a local church. I was called to preach through the ministry of a local church. I've served the local church since I was in my early 20s. I have the family of God here is my family in the local church. I can't even begin to tell you the things that God has done in my life and through my life because I gather together with the people of God in a local church. I can't even begin to tell you the things that God has done. I can't begin to tell you the blessing it's been to have raised my children who are now 40-whatever and 38. I can't even begin to tell you how blessed it is to raise my children in a church and the positive impact that that experience had on their lives. And you know what? I give to the local church because it changed my life. It's changing a lot of other people's lives, and I want to pay it forward for others. You say, pay it forward? Yeah, I know what that generally means. Pay it forward means when somebody's done something nice to you, you turn around and do something nice for somebody else. I go to McDonald's periodically, rarely, not to buy hamburgers or french fries, usually to get my wife a cup of coffee. And whenever I have an hour to go wait in the line, I go to McDonald's. I pulled up to the window before and somebody had paid my bill. Now what am I supposed to do? Drive up to the next window and say, hey, this is great. My bill's all paid. You're supposed to pay it forward. Wouldn't you know what that means? 
the guy behind you, you're supposed to pay his bill. And I have not figured out yet why when I'm there to get a coffee, the car behind me is there to get four Big Macs, three <laughs> super large fries. I have not been able to figure this out yet. But I want you to think of pay it forward in a different way. Think of it in a different way. Pay it forward means if you had some kind deed done to you, you'd show a kind deed to somebody else. But I want you to think of it in another way. Now listen again to what I read to you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Can I just tell you? Our son two weeks ago, three weeks ago, went to the drugstore, came back home in the evening, pulled in his driveway, a car pulls up, blocks the driveway. When our son gets out of his car, the man gets out of the car at the end of the driveway with a gun in his hand, puts him on the ground, lays him on the ground with a gun pointed at him, and makes him give him everything that he's got in his pockets. A 38-year-old son. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Now listen, pay it forward. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Pay it forward. I give to the local church because I'm paying it forward. I'm laying up treasures in heaven. I don't have as many here as some of you have, but I got a whole bunch over there. And the moths and the rust and the thieves can't take it away. And I'm paying it forward because I know other people who need their lives to be changed by the power of Jesus Christ through the working of a ministry like this. And I want to pay it forward that they can be blessed as I have been blessed. You say, preacher, you're talking about giving. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. A little bit different way to go about it. Malachi said if they were going to have revival, it would start with their money. I'll return to you when you return to me. How, how are we supposed to return to you, God? By bringing your tithes and your offerings to me. We're not under the law. We're under the grace of Jesus Christ, which has made us rich. We are rich in the benefits he's bestowed upon us. Don't ask me to give only a tenth. I'm looking for the ways to give a lot more than a tenth because I have been the recipient of the riches of Jesus Christ. And when I give it, I give it to the local church for the seven reasons I just told you. While there are lots of things that are in need and lots of things that if I could help, I'll try to help the one thing that I'm going to be invested in is the local church because I'm going to pay it forward and lay up treasures in heaven.